0: Hey, Al. I… I I just can't stop thinking about SPAT. You mean the backward-aging bounty hunter girl that hates Gambit, the one that wears a cavewoman outfit for some reason and hangs out with the big frog-cat-lizard dude that you thought sounded like a
1: Muppet? Yeah, that one. What's her deal? It seems like she's supposed to be really important, but we barely find out anything about her past. All we know is that she took a shot from a de-aging ray meant for Gambit back when they were friends. Well, we learn a
0: little bit more about her past in the flashback issue Gambit from the Marvel Vault
1: from 2011. That's great. Does it shed light on her tragic history and give her some much-needed character depth? (laughs) No, not really. I mean, in fact, I don't think she was even
0: supposed to be in it initially. It was just an issue of old George Tuska art that Scott Lobdell scripted over after Tuska died. It seems that apparently the the random blonde woman that Gambit was working for in his past was just named Spat by Lobdell to tie the story
1: better into Gambit's past. Oh, that's disappointing. I was hoping for some substance. And then to make it worse, we never even see Spat again.
0: Well, that's also not true because she was part of the focus of the Gambit cyber comic The Hunt for the Tomorrow Stone which came out just a couple of years after the comics that we're talking about on the show. And she got re-aged at the end of that as well. Okay, now
1: that is a title.
0: What's a cyber comic? It was an early digital comic on America Online. There were little bits of macromedia shockwave animation
1: and even some short music clips. And Phoebe Neuzeza wrote this one. I am madly in love with everything you're telling me, Al. I've got to read this. Can we delay a recording while I do so? I bet it'll be super relevant this whole episode. We can't unfortunately, and not just because it's eight hours later in Scotland and I need to go to
0: bed soon oh but 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 why not? It's a cyber comic al because it's lost. America online never backed it up when they shut the cyber comic
1: program down. No, oh, that's awful there There has to be a copy somewhere well, there's a rumor that a copy
0: may exist. Where? Buried somewhere in the office of the TV producer who wrote last year's Ziggy Pig and Silly Seal comic.
1: Uh Uh-huh.
0: On that, famously, unstable medium. Oh, no. A jazz drive.
1: What? I'm Miles Stokes.
0: And I'm Al Kennedy, filling in for G-Edison while he's on parental leave. And we're here
1: to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 400 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. 400! Happy birthday! <laughs> Thank you! That that That's a big number, and it ends in two zeros, and as we've learned from comics, that, that is inherently significant. Uh, I, I think mainly it just makes me realize how long we've been doing this show. Not only did we just hit issue number 400, we're coming up on our ninth birthday in just a few months? Yeah, well, uh,
0: House to Astonish, the, the show that I uh, also do is um, we just hit our 14th birthday and our 200th episode, so that just goes to show how much um, less Our work ethic
1: is (laughs) (laughs) i mean when jay and i started this show i don't think we realized um just how much a uh, mostly weekly show was going to impact our lives perhaps we would have made decisions differently at the start but um we didn't and and here we are at 400 although i I guess with special episodes it's more like 430 something i guess we could use legacy numbering like uh, marvel comics do these (laughs) days if we wanted. They never get it right. It's too too tricky a proposition, really. I think you're opening a can of worms if you start trying to
0: do legacy numbering.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Like, because we could include Hawk Talk, but then what about our random movie reviews? What about random, like, interviews with people or couch specials at conventions? Like, where do you draw the line? There'd be so much controversy, and X-Men fans already get angry about things. Yeah,
0: continuity and legacy numbering is a famously difficult puzzle to resolve. I think it's, if,
1: it's the third rail, really. Don't touch it if you want to survive. Best not, best not. So, yes, uh, this is a centennial episode, obviously our fourth. Uh, For the first two, 100 and 200, we had big interviews with Chris Claremont and Louis Simonson, which those were great. For 300, we covered the end of an era. That was the Age of Apocalypse finale, X-Men Omega. That lined up nicely. And this one lines up nicely in kind of a different way.
0: Yeah, it's a brand new era. It's a weird era. You've got the end of what was for better or worse, a landmark writing run. Scott Lobdell finishes up his long run on the books. He abruptly quits with issue 349 of Uncanny and issue 69 of X-Men. And we get Steve Siegel and Joe Kelly on the books, who we talked a little bit about last time around, but it's probably worth mentioning a little bit about where they came from this time around as
1: well. So in Comics Creators on X-Men, we get some interviews with various creators. And Interestingly, Chris Claremont has a lot to say about why Siegel and Kelly came onto the book.
0: Chris Claremont, when he was interviewed in that book, said, Bob Harris wanted me to come back and take over one of the X-Books. Scott Lobdell would write the other. Bob figured that would be the best of both worlds. Scott had a certain following, and so did I. We could maybe play to our different strengths. But before I agreed to write X-Men, I had to settle some outstanding royalty stuff with Marvel as far as Toy Biz was concerned. While this was happening, Scott decided to leave X-Men and Bob suddenly had to get writers on both books. By the time I came back, the books had already been handed over to Joe Kelly and Steve Siegel. Since Bob had already made a commitment to these two guys, he felt he couldn't just dump them. Instead of doing X-Men, I came back as editorial director and ended up taking over a Fantastic Four because Scott had also quit that book. And Chris
1: Pachalo had
0: a, a bit to say about it as well.
1: The editorial climate at the time was extremely poor. They kept changing story directions from issue to issue. They'd have the meeting, decide on a direction, and change their minds a few months later. I think it was all very frustrating for Steve Siegel and Joe Kelly, the writers at the time. They were having their differences with the editorial group, and I think they got completely burned out after a year. I don't know if they were fired or if they left, but it was just a horrible situation. And it made drawing the book really difficult. We'd get working on the storyline, and then it would change and go in another direction. And so... That is the era that we're starting. We're starting in an era of absolute chaos. It begins with Lobdell's abrupt departure, and it will end with these two runs, Siegel and Kelly's, kind of falling apart. Eventually, we'll get Alan Davis back on the book. We'll have Claremont a bit later, and it's just going to be kind of weird until like the Morrison-Austin era or or thereabouts.
0: Yeah, it's a very um, up-and-down period for the X-Books. There are so many great ideas that get thrown onto the books and so few of them really get the chance to pay off. One thing which people say about Chris Claremont's run is that things would take a long time to come to fruition. He would set his subplots running years before they became uh, the main plots of his stories and that is true to an extent. I think there is an element of um, plate spinning that he was doing as well where he maybe not, didn't know quite where he was going to end up with a certain things i think uh thinking he was some kind of master planner of everything is, is maybe um going a little bit far but he, certainly he managed to make it look seamless mm-hmm. whereas here we get the starts of a lot of plots that just don't get to play out at all we get things which are dropped we get things which are hinted at and then never paid off and it's kind of a I don't want to say it's kind of embarrassing, but it's kind of shambolic.
1: It is, yeah, and we've certainly seen that before in this era. I mean, for me, I think that the most prominent example is the assassination of Graydon Creed. Like, that's this immense event that affects everything around it, and we don't find out what happened with that until years later in a mini series that comes up with a solution that barely makes sense. So, you know, I mean, they do follow up to their credit, at least there's that. But it's a weird time. It's definitely a weird time. Um, I think we've all gotten kind of spoiled in the modern era of X-Men, not that it not that Hickman's on the book right now, but he was for so long, and the current era is still in his shadow, where everything ties together so neatly. Uh, that is not the case here, but, Like you said, Al, we get some really high highs. We get some ideas that are fascinating. We get some bits that totally work. So amid that chaos, amid these high highs and low lows, maybe we should talk a little about what happened previously on X-Men.
0: Okay, so previously, 399 episodes ago, this show had a few things to say about the strangest teens of all.
1: Okay, maybe maybe that's uh, too much. Uh, how about 60 years ago, Professor X gathered a team... Yeah, I think that's probably still too much. Why don't we focus on the last bit? Recently, the X-Men managed
0: to survive Operation Zero Tolerance, which was this violently militaristic international
1: anti-mutant objective. Cyclops, Phoenix, Wolverine, Storm, and Cannonball were captured and managed to fight their way free, but not before Operation Zero Tolerance secretly implanted a bomb in Cyclops' abdomen. A bomb that is about to explode!
0: Meanwhile, Iceman, who who's on a leave of absence, worked with two other mutants to escape Operation Zero Tolerance. One of those was Marrow, who is a very violent former member of the Morlocks, who in turn are a group of mutants who lived underground and then in another dimension where time flowed faster than on Earth. And she's now trying to do the right thing as a favour to her friend Callisto, but she's kind of been a dick about it, frankly. She grows extra bones and throws them at people, and it's all quite messy. Uh, Cecilia Reyes is the other person that Iceman was uh, teaming up with around this time, she's an ER doctor. She never wanted to be defined as a mutant. She's lost everything now that she's been outed. She's got a force field, and she has
1: superhuman levels of grumpiness. But not everyone was dealing with Operation Zero Tolerance. For instance... Archangel and Psylocke, also on a leave of absence after Psylocke's life was saved by some personality-altering interdimensional ninja magic, it's a whole thing. They've gotten tangled up with Maggot, an Australian, I mean, okay, now South African mutant, with an external digestive system in the form of two slugs named Eni and Meanie.
0: If Maggot thinks he's got it bad, he should talk to Pyro. That guy's accent's traveled the world more than Anthony Bourdain.
1: maggot has been looking for joseph the possibly de-aged amnesiac version of magneto long story we're not sure why maggot's looking for him but that search has led his face right into the foot of psylocke who senses something dark inside him it's two slugs betsy we've established this pay
0: attention (laughs) right meanwhile professor xavier has been in an operations zero tolerance run prison ever since he kind of sort of became the ultra villain onslaught and killed a ton of people
1: The defeat of Operation Zero Tolerance hasn't changed that fact. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Beast Rogue Gambit Bishop, the aforementioned Joseph, and Beast's human ex, the journalist Trish Tilby, they missed Operation Zero Tolerance entirely because they went on a space adventure and successfully defeated the evil phalanx to save the Shi'ar Empire. Now, on their way back, a random spaceship crashed into the Stargate to Earth just as they were entering it, And when they got through that in mostly one piece, well, them, not their ship, they were found by Spat and Grovel, two bounty hunters hired to capture Gambit for their mysterious boss. Why would someone want to capture Gambit? Well, maybe they're a Pokemon trainer and they're trying to fill out their Pokédex?
0: Maybe they're a Pokemon player and they're trying to rescue some rare cards before Gambit explodes
1: them. It's definitely one of those two things, or if it's not, it might have something to do with the dark secret that these comics have been hinting at for years in Gambit's past.
0: And that's something to
1: do with Mr. Sinister. It's something that Gambit did in his pre-X-Men
0: days that he is
1: not proud of. Both Rogue and Psylocke have gotten hints of that secret using their own powers, but Gambit ain't talking. Instead, he has just surrendered to Spat and Grovel, which brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 350, Trial and Errors. Script for this is by Steve Siegel, penciled by Joe Majorar and Andy Smith, inked
0: by Tim Townsend, Vince Russell, and Dan Panosian, colored by Steve Gelato, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Colia Fuchs.
1: Okay, so you said script by Steve Siegel. We don't have a writer or a plotter listed, but that's gotta be Scott Lobdell, right? I mean, this is the climax of all of these plot threads he's been building up.
0: yeah. Steve Siegel posted on Usenet around the time or just after the, the time that the issue came out. And he said that by the time he came onto the book, part of the issue had already been written and actually some of it had already been drawn before he even got anywhere near it. And some of Lobdell's ideas certainly are in that final version of the issue that got published. Siegel actually said later that as far as he's concerned, issue 353 should really be taken as the actual start of his run.
1: Oh, wow. So Laudville's ideas extend that far, not just this issue, but the couple following as well.
0: Yeah, I and mean, the, the couple following are
1: odd little fish, I
0: suppose, season. But
1: um, we'll get there. We'll get to those ones. And this one's definitely odd, too. I mean, it makes sense that with Steve Siegel having to scramble like this, being abruptly thrown onto the book uh, before he was expecting to, that there would be a number of continuity errors. And boy, howdy, are there a number of continuity errors
0: there are vast quantities of them and we will highlight some of these as we go through but it's not just a writing changeover it's also an art side changeover happening here too this is Joe Majorara's last issue of Uncanny X-Men before he goes off to pretend to draw battle chasers and I think probably mostly play Final Fantasy VIII I think at the time but we do get Crisp Challow coming on as the regular penciler of the book in a few issues time again the 351, 352 are, are kind of odd issues, but we will, we will look at those all in good time. But even on this issue, Joe Majrar doesn't draw the whole thing. Andy Smith, who is a frequent pinch hitter penciler for the ex-office around this time, comes in and does a good chunk of it.
1: And to Smith's credit, the art is not distractingly contrasting. Like it vaguely feels like it's all the same issue. I mean, it's kind of an incoherent issue, but that's not the fault of the art.
0: Yeah, I mean, it holds together as well as any other aspect of this issue holds together.
1: So it is, of course, a double-sized issue. It ends in 50, after all. Uh, And it also has a gatefold cover, like a three-page kind where you fold out one side but not the other. Uh, You could buy it in either regular or foil for the low, low price of more money. Um, it's kind of cool, like Gambit's in the center looking grim and holding four charged aces, and then the X-Men are all on the left looking badass, and the Marauders are all on the right looking badass. Those are Sinister's old henchmen who have done some very bad things.
0: And as we're going to find out as we go through this issue, Gambit and the Marauders have got previous, as we would say in the UK. But we start the issue with Spat and Grovel having taken Gambit to their boss on a snowmobile through Antarctica. We are going to find out in this issue who Spat and Grovel's boss is. This is something which was hinted at and teased a little in in the previous issue, but not really expanded on. But even in this scenario here, we've got Gambit in his full coat and X-Men costume and everything. And Spat is still just wearing a little fur bikini in the cape. You know, they've got some kind of protective field around them, but she must be
1: absolutely freezing. You can see her breath. Okay, one of the many questions I have about Spat is, why does she dress like a cavewoman? Like, the reverse aging thing, she got hit by a ray, she's a bounty hunter, they could dress a little weird, but why specifically a cavewoman? What is happening here?
0: I don't know whether it's because Lobdell and Majara were like, we want to make the least action-figurable action figure ever, therefore let's have a young girl in a bikini that's a sort of weird loincloth thing. And in fairness, that's, it's pretty weird. And, uh, they shouldn't really have made the action figure. They did anyway. (laughs) Nineties. We've not seen any
1: evidence of her having any powers. Like she could, she could have any powers so far as we know, frankly. You know, maybe we would know more about her if we could find that goddamn cyber comic. (laughs) Gambit is reminiscing at the outset of this issue
0: about still not being able to tell Rogue as he left about her giving him this Queen of Hearts card to remember her by. Where she got that from, that's a whole other thing. It's the tiniest of continuity errors in this issue. Spat is still angry
1: at Gambit and she knocks the card out of his hand as they get pulled underground. Which will be significant, but let's head back to above the volcano base that the X-Men have escaped from. Beast is there rebuilding the wreckage of their crashed Shi'ar spaceship into a land skimmer using, like, robot parts from poor deceased Nanny and various bits of volcano-based tech.
0: I think he's probably getting all the bits of technology that are lying around, which means that there's not just bits of Nanny on there. There's probably, like, cyborg gorilla viscera hanging off the side because he's plugged a bit of one of those in. I mean, this is the start of the the decline of the beast that we've seen over the past few years in particular. Um, But Rogue is very clear with the rest of the team that before they do anything else, they are going to have to go and rescue Gambit. And there's no point in welding bits of large mammals
1: onto the side of their ship if they're not
0: going to rescue him
1: first. The skimmer is impressively makeshift. Uh, we don't quite see that viscera, but yeah, I, I'm sure it's there. But it's like this big round spaceship part with a bunch of others haphazardly sort of bolted together. And as it drives, there's this spack sputter choom boom. It looks real, real sketchy.
0: Mm. Rogue and Joseph are both feeling something at the same empty spot in this landscape. Rogue feels it through Carol Danvers' old seventh sense, I love when they do stuff with Rogue and Carol Danvers. The fact that she's still got all these things left over from Carol's original Ms. Marvel set of powers is terrific when they remember that (laughs) that's actually part of Rogue's power sense as well. Having a seventh sense is, I think, terrific. Having a sixth sense is incredibly passe. Having a spider sense... uh, I I did look up on the internet uh, before this senses and how many there are. Apparently... You could classify humans as having up to 17 different senses, and they include things like heat and pressure and things like that. So maybe she's just standing there going, am I getting warm? Am I
1: getting warmer? <laughs> <She's just> walking, <laughs> walking around, Marco, Marco. And it's, uh, in fact, that Queen of Hearts that uh, psychically says polo, I suppose. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and at the same time, Joseph collapses, because he's a total drama llama, yelling about how he is here and just yanks this massive, gigantic, futuristic citadel out of the ground with
1: his powers. So what now? Rogue has an idea. We're X-Men, sugar. We charge right on into the unknown and save our own. Let's get going. And in they go. There's a castle full of random
0: justice-related paraphernalia.
1: Yeah, there's this big statue of blind justice. There's the Code of Hammurabi written on metal sheets. There are the Ten Commandments. There's this huge library full of vaguely justice-related books. It is it is hewing hard to its brand, this castle that Joseph pulled up.
0: Yeah, And I think this is what you get for your birthday when your granny's heard that you're into justice but doesn't really know anything about it beyond
1: that. This is why I have a lot of Beta Ray Bill-related stuff uh, at my desk at work. Not that I'm complaining, mind you
0: there's also statues in this castle and weirdly one of the statues is of thunderbird and one of them is of the age of apocalypse version of blink uh
1: i mean okay thunderbird fallen x-men that's gonna tie in Blink. i mean the earth 616 version of blink did indeed die the age of apocalypse version of blink is still around
0: yeah it it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever anyway simultaneously to this all going on back in manhattan psylocke having had this fight with maggot sinks with him into the shadows because this is her power now or one of her powers to try to find out what that dark empty part of him is that is so attractive to her so they go into the shadow porter and they all end up
1: in the castle because of the plot leading them to Yeah, this reminds me a lot of the X-Men going through that crashed Stargate and ending up right where Spat and Grovel were. It's very convenient. And I mean, you know, I think to the comics credit, they do often have a character be like, hey, why did this happen? That's kind of weird. But lampshading it doesn't fix the fact that it is an immense coincidence that is never actually explained. I mean, I know we need to get all the X-Men together. I'm totally fine with that. That's great. And I guess... I don't know. I guess you could say that since Psylocke is delving deep into Maggot's subconscious mind, we know that Maggot was searching for Joseph, and we know that Joseph is in this castle, and therefore, there they go. That That's the best explanation I have.
0: Yeah, it does kind of make you wonder why he didn't try that the first time. Just go and find someone who knows where Joseph is and say, excuse me, could you take me to this guy? As opposed to just wandering around randomly doing Psychometric stuff with bits of New York's tourist attractions. The coincidences piling up is, it's genuinely very funny. Like Spat and Grovel being given this mission by their boss, stepping out of their boss's base, and then having the person they're looking for literally just crash in front of them is like, well, that was the uh, easiest money we've earned in a while, isn't it? They're
1: going to have so much of their per diem left over.
0: absolutely it's just well but we take the afternoon off i think we might as well
1: (laughs) (laughs) betsy is still feeling a bit weird
0: after the whole crimson dawn thing happening and that's fair because the crimson dawn is an absolute mess but this last teleportation to the citadel in the in the arctic uh, kind of it's fair enough i think she actually references her last transformation from
1: and i quote British marm to Asian beauty. Okay, wait a minute. Marm? Betsy, you were literally a fashion model before your transformation. I don't think marm is the right word for that. I don't know, I'm American. Like, Al, you're from at least vaguely close to England. Marm? Any insight?
0: I can only imagine that it's either short for marmalade or marmoset
1: or marmaduke. Maybe she was a large cartoon strip dog. There have been a lot of transformations. Who can say?
0: (laughs) But then she just gets captured by
1: someone anyway. And Archangel also gets captured because he's flying around there as well because he's followed them through. Joseph from the previous group of X-Men wanders off from the rest of the team and he actually ends up with the other person who's been teleported in here, that being Maggot. Remember, Maggot has been looking for Joseph. And we find out why. Apparently, Maggot really wanted to find Joseph to just thank him for something that Magneto did for Maggot in the past. Seriously, dude, this meeting could have been an email. But then somebody sucker zaps Joseph from behind, and Maggot's kind of okay with this because this mysterious figure that we haven't seen, who may or may not be the same mysterious figure that kidnapped Psylocke and Archangel, apparently is also somebody that Maggot trusts. So the plot thickens. Mm.
0: Meanwhile, Rogue finds Gambit. It seems that Gambit's probably been chained up down here for a while. He's got all these chains hanging off him. Literally, they're going from about six or seven different connection points on his manacles and neck collar thing and and, and all kinds of stuff.
1: One interesting bit here is that we see in a previous scene that right after getting captured, Gambit recognizes Mr. Sinister's voice haranguing him. But here's the thing, Sinister isn't actually in this story. Sinister is in a flashback in this story that we'll talk about shortly, but that's it. And I have to wonder, is that just a continuity error? Is that because the issue was rushed? Was perhaps Sinister originally going to be here? I, I honestly don't know. And these various bits and pieces that don't quite line up, on the one hand, they certainly keep the reader off guard, which I think is something the issue is trying to do, but I'm not sure those parts were specifically intended to do so.
0: No, I think it's just messy, frankly. There's the bit where Sinister, we find out later, gives Gambit something for doing a job for him, which we eventually find out, like literally about two years later, is sort of genetic samples from Gambit's brain. But then he also promises him another prize for doing something else for him, and that is completely dropped as a plot line.
1: Yeah, yeah, we we do get a, a fair bit of that. But we do also get some really good character development. Um, Siegel is the scripter of this issue, and Siegel is an excellent scripter. I mean, I've I've spoken before about how I really like him as a writer in general, and we do see some of that. So I I definitely want to emphasize, like, this issue is messy. I think our feelings on it are somewhat uh, mixed, but Siegel does the best he can with what he's given. So... Gambit uh, doesn't really want to pull Rogue into any of this anymore, or if he does, he just wants her to end his pain, saying,
0: Get out. Just get out, girl. I don't love you. Now will never. Go. What'll happen here must happen. I'm ready to face that
1: alone. What is this? Airbud? Or, or White Fang? Or one of a number of movies, actually. <laughs> but Rogue is not having any of it at all, to her credit. The hell you will? I don't believe a word you just said. Get up. I just found you, Remy, and I ain't about to lose you. Whatever's eaten at you, we'll work through it together. Far, far away from here. Gas yes. Gone
0: Rogue. See, this is the rogue that I recognize. Later in this very same issue, we'll get the rogue that I really don't recognize at all. Yeah. Yeah. But they're arguing away, and at this point in time, who should turn up? If you guessed it, it's Eric the Red, then well, then well done, firstly, because who on earth would have thought Eric the Red would have turned up in this, except for obviously someone who's looked at the last page of the previous issue. But, you know, anyone who was placing betting odds on it at the time the issues were solicited would
1: never have suggested Eric the Red would have turned up. Right, because Eric the Red isn't actually a character. Kind of, uh, he is. He was originally in in comics uh, a secret identity of Cyclops that Cyclops used to infiltrate Magneto's team. Like it's this sort of red. We, we refer to him as a bondage Viking, and that's the best way I can think of to describe him. It's like this sort of bondage gear with with horns on his head and big gauntlets and armor and, and stuff why cyclops chose that outfit to infiltrate magneto's brotherhood we will never know but he did and then later the eric the red identity came back this time as the outfit of a shiar spy named devon shikari around the time of i think around the phoenix saga or thereabouts um in the modern era it turns out eric the red is one of the group called the kin crimson we're seeing that in marauders it's complicated but at this point in continuity eric the red was only ever a secret identity used by two entirely unrelated people for entirely unrelated reasons and yet here he is
0: yeah i can only imagine that it must have been the last costume in the shop on the day that whoever this person is and we will find out later in this issue went in to pick something up it's like so have you got anything in uh I don't know, like an Abraham Lincoln. Nope. Have you got like, uh, oh, what about a Reagan? Could you, you give it like a Reagan mask? I could put a suit on. No. What's that red bondage suit in the back? Oh, that thing. Yeah, that's Eric the Red. <laughs> uh,
1: I'll take that. Thanks. Someday we'll get a prequel to this issue, which is just all about that.
0: <laughs> so Eric the Red orders Spat and Grovel to prepare the various prisoners for, you know, a thing and whilst this is happening in this prison that Xavier is being held in
1: he is having a dream of what's held him together over the years and that bit the what holds you together and what pulls you apart that's something that we're going to get in the narration repeatedly in this issue It's very poetic. I don't know that it necessarily comes together thematically, but I respect that Siegel is doing his damnedest to have like a thematic through line of all of these scenes. And this page, I don't know that it contributes a ton to the issue, but it is cool. We get these three similar panels, horizontal panels, one on top of the other, of Xavier sitting impassively in his wheelchair, surrounded by different eras of the team, all trying to get his attention. First, we have the original five X-Men from the Silver Age, In that panel, it's his students that hold him together. Then the 70s, all-new, all-different team. In that panel, it's Lalandra, his space girlfriend, that holds him together. And then the current version of the late 90s team. And in that, according to the narration, what holds him together is something that has slipped away. We do skip the 80s in between those, but to be fair, Xavier wasn't really around for about half of the 80s, but I love this stuff. I always love when we get to see different iterations of the X-Men sort of paralleled to one another. I remember about 10 years ago, we got these variant covers of all new X-Men number 18 for the X-Men's, I think, 50th anniversary. And they were all the same cover design, but they had different color schemes and each showcased the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s version of the X-Men, kind of all in the same positions, but with different X-Men filling those positions. It was really cool. I'll see if we can put a link to those in the visual companion.
0: Yeah, the panels here on this page are terrific. The way that they are structured and set up with the the various X-Men all kind of clamoring for the attention of Xavier, it's almost kind of this Last Supper style Image that they've got going on. I think it's likely that this was one of the pages that had already been drawn when Siegel picked the issue up, because it doesn't actually have any part to play in the story. Although interestingly enough, Cyclops does say in each of these panels, "He's here again, Professor."
1: Yeah, yeah, that does tie it in pretty nicely. Nicely enough to make the page worth it. I don't know, but I appreciate that that's there. It justifies my love of pages like this. So, so I'm okay with it. <laughs>
0: Meanwhile, it's time for a trial, like we were promised on the front cover.
1: So we have various people in the trial fulfilling various roles. The judge is a robot named Ferris. A robot named
0: Ferris. I never figured that many of the X-Men villains would be big for a pun. You know, I didn't think that was really their bag. But no, you get a robot and you call them Ferris. Very good, very good. The defendant in the trial is Gambit, (laughs) and he is kept... In a guillotine throughout the whole thing, which, I mean, I, I, I'm no international humanitarian law expert, but I'm fairly sure that that does not send the
1: right signal. Yeah, that kind of might influence the impartiality of the jury, right? <laughs> exactly. Although the jury, which we'll get to in a second, is a bit of a,
0: a strange collection of people as well the prosecution is eric the red of course the defense interestingly enough is archangel <laughs> remembers that eric the red isn't real he's just like what, what are we even doing here this guy doesn't exist why is he prosecuting this
1: he was there when scott summers first put on that shockingly revealing uh, red leather outfit uh the jury as you mentioned that is a lot of the captured characters beast rogue psylocke maggot and trish Chilby.
0: Joseph gets brought into the courtroom. He's been beaten badly. Apparently he was found unworthy because he renounced who he was and embraced his mortal foes, according to Eric the Red. Eric the Red has got very strong views on loyalty and defending the people who you're supposed to be standing by and not turning against the people who you're supposed to be working with or on the same side as eric is in this version at least extremely sure of himself he is declamatory he speaks in a combination of bold and italics which i remember from when i first got access to word processing software means that you really mean it <laughs> yep and he speaks so dramatically which
1: i mean fair enough if you're gonna be wearing that outfit there's no point in doing anything by half measures So Gambit's accusation, he is accused of the mass murder of the Morlocks. And for those of us who have been following these comics, for those of us who know continuity, we kind of started to see this coming. But let's talk a little bit about when that happened. Let's talk a little bit about the Mutant Massacre. So the Mutant Massacre was the very first X-Men crossover. And in that, the Marauders, who we later find out were working for Mr. Sinister... Uh, they go into the Morlock tunnels, the tunnels of the Morlocks, these people who are mutants but can't really pass as humans. So they live underground, away from humanity, and the Marauders killed almost all of the Morlocks. Interestingly, this came about in part because when Paul Smith drew the Morlock tunnels initially, he drew way more Morlocks there than Chris Claremont intended for there to be. So this was a bit of course correction. But it was a gigantic tragedy. I mean, probably hundreds of Morlocks were just slaughtered, most of whom were entirely defenseless, most of whom had mutations that were not particularly combat related. So this is one of the worst things at this point in continuity to have ever happened to mutant kind. And now Gambit is accused of it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that Eric Red wants to punish Gambit. He doesn't want to go after Sinister, for example, or the Marauders. It might be that he hates traitors more than he hates just villains.
1: Maybe, yeah. Uh, interestingly, there are statues, more statues of what Eric the Red describes as being two of the victims of the Mutant Massacre, Scaleface and Prism. But wait a minute, Prism was actually one of the Marauders, not not a Morlock. Yeah,
0: I am wondering whether if someone in the X Office at the time thought mistakenly that Prism was a Morlock, that would actually explain why last issue there was a suggestion that Gambit had been accompanied into the tunnels by eight people rather than nine, which is how many people he'd actually gone in with. The full list of the Marauders that were there at the time was uh, Sabretooth, Scallop Hunter, Arc Arclight, Riptide, Scrambler, Prism, Blockbuster, and Harpoon. So there were nine Marauders plus Gambit, and there's been a, a bit of mistaken identity. A bit of misfiling has been done here. Scaleface also didn't die in this story. Scaleface does die later on, but completely unrelatedly.
1: Yeah. So, eh, what what can you do? It is just interesting that, like, the two specific examples, the only examples of dead Morlocks we get, um, were, were not uh, actually that. They weren't <laughs> killed in the Mutant Massacre.
0: Yeah, later on, we will uh, see the Morlocks come back as as a force, and a lot of the characters who were believed to be dead, particularly uh, some of the bigger-name ones, will turn out to not be dead. But at this point in time, it's still very much the story where the mutants as... A people suffered their biggest, well, semi-genocide, effectively. It was a really horrific thing to have happen. And for Gambit to be linked to that, you can kind of see why that would weigh on him and why it would be the kind of thing that would come as a shock to the rest of the X-Men. So between Gambit's confession here, which he gives, and Psylocke finally understanding what she pulled out of his head in Uncanny X-Men 324 we get the basics of the story all kind of coming together. Gambit put together the Marauder team for Sinister. The Marauders are a bunch of uh, evil mutants, effectively, from all different walks of life. Uh, Sabretooth is by far the biggest name member of them. We get actually a flashback at the beginning of this issue of Gambit and Sinister meeting up in a church, and they're both wearing fancy suits, and Sinister gives Gambit this metal capsule which you will find out in issue 14 of gambit about two years later on is a bit of gambit's brain which gross frankly and archangel back at the trial is kind of standing up for gambit and you know saying well both of us went through our own darkness and then eric points out no look you got nailed to some furniture and that's this guy's fault You went through your dark
1: night of the soul. You became death. And if not for this dude here, that wouldn't have happened. Exactly. There was the first time Archangel was taken to the Morlock tunnels back when he was Angel by Callisto, but the bad time was during the mutant massacre. That's where Harpoon impaled Angel by his wings to a wall. And Angel would later lose those wings to gangrene. Uh, He would seemingly die. Apocalypse would transform him into Archangel with his metal wings with a will to kill. Like all of that If indeed Gambit's responsible for the mutant massacre, you could see it as being Gambit's fault. Yeah.
0: So Eric the Red is determined to pin the whole thing on Gambit. And it's fair enough. Warren at this point is not really up for being uh, Gambit's defender anymore. And so Eric just says, well, bring in the reformed villainess rogue to kiss Gambit and pull all these secrets out of him. And this is genuinely it's a heartbreaking scene she is dragged across the floor by her shackles over to Remy. gambit says to her it's not your fault and these are basically the last words he says to her before it all really kicks off none of the other x-men step in at any point to try to stop this like beast and everybody are still sitting over on the jury bench and it, like guys you're, this is your mate here no
1: wonder gambit feels like he has to do things alone yeah it's unclear just how uh fully restrained the the other characters are but nobody speaks up it's true and part of that might just be that narratively it's the dramatic part is rogue and gambit talking but it does seem strange like at this point gambit certainly he's being accused of some some pretty rough crimes but the history that they all have together, like, you would think that some of the characters who weren't so directly influenced by that history, like, say, Angel, that some of the other characters would at least say, whoa, now hold on a second, or something like that.
0: Yeah. So the full story comes out. Gambit showed the Marauders how to get into the Morlock tunnels. He didn't just gather the team together. But that's another continuity error, because the Marauders had to hunt their way into the tunnels, originally. Remember Tommy? That's he uh, Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. She had that sort of rainbow hair and the white outfit. Great Morlock design. She she
0: looked cool. Um, But throughout the whole thing, Gambit was terrified what might happen and when the violence starts kicking off, he's distraught really and he he does the very little that he can do to try to stop what's happening. But really the only thing he can do is he saves one person, which is this little girl called Sarah who's got bones all sticking out of her. Sounds vaguely familiar. and rogue on the other side of this happening is absolutely outraged and really really furious and justifiably so and that's it she's had enough so she uses gambit's powers to bust the x-men out and then they just leather the crap out of eric the red well done the x-men you finally decided that you had enough of this but he brings down the castle, he's happy that he's sown a lot of discord, he's just, he's done his job as far as he's concerned.
1: And off they go, escaping that load-bearing boss that was was Eric the Red, and as the narration tells us, it pulls in many directions all at once, returning to that refrain, it's Rogue that carries Gambit out. Gambit's not in great shape after everything he's been through, understandably, mm. He's so, like, he's really grateful to her
0: for believing that he's changed. But that doesn't last for very long because she just
1: drops him out in the snow. Out here? It's up to you whether you live or die. I don't care anymore.
0: Rogue, I don't care if you leave me here, Cher. But you have to understand.
1: You think I can understand you? You think wrong,
0: mister. Fine, then. I've earned your hatred. But at least get me
1: somewhere that'll give me a chance to get back home. Home? You ain't got no home, sugar. Not with me. Not with the X-Men.
0: And she chucks that Queen of Hearts down on the ground in front of him and leaves him.
1: Brutal! Rogue, what are you doing? So, yeah, this this is strange. Like, you alluded to this earlier, Al, because Rogue was... She knows Gambit very well. She was coming to his aid. She was coming to his defense. She wasn't taking his self-hatred. She wasn't allowing him to define the situation with that. And this is such a, a shocking turn. Like, I don't know. Does, does this work? I, it doesn't work for me.
0: I can't see a version of Rogue that would leave Gambit to die in the snow. Like, I know that it's, it's been so... It's been a horrible, brutal day for her as much as it's been for anybody but it just doesn't sit with the way that the character has ever been portrayed before
1: yeah i mean we do know this is an era where editorial was um heavily influencing the writing i wonder if that's something that's happening with this particular scene i do know that Gambit's going to get some solo stuff uh like a mini series and a solo comic i think coming up maybe that was to lead into that it's it's rough though. Um there is a retcon, actually just a few issues from here, I think, once Siegel fully takes over, where we find that part of Rogue's uh disdain for Gambit was her having absorbed his self hatred when she absorbed his memories, which I guess works. And if that had been clearer here, I think this scene could work. But as it is, it just feels so so crushingly out of character for this relationship that um as a reader I think most of us have become very invested in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Although, I mean, it does seem Gambit was probably right not to tell her, like, if this is what's going to happen, he gets left to die on some ice floe somewhere.
1: Yeah, but uh, Eric the Red, in the meantime, he's still around, and he has Ferris the Robot help him out of his bondage Viking gear and puts on a very familiar helmet.
0: It's Magneto! Anybody who guessed it was Magneto, I mean, that was actually much easier to guess than the fact that Eric the Red might turn up. So,
1: yeah, that line in the Xavier dream repeated, he's here again professor. This is to him. And you know, Magneto to be fair is actually named Eric, kind of, sort of.
0: <laughs> Certainly to to a certain extent in some continuities. Uh yeah. Having two Magnetos at the same time I don't know who looked at the Spider books and thought that duplicating their characters was ever going to be a recipe for a decent story that told itself well, but apparently it was an editorial idea, it wasn't anything that came from Scott Lobdell, it wasn't anything that came from Steve Siegel, whether it was because they just didn't want to have a heroic Magneto, who knows.
1: Yeah. So there we go. It's the very messy end to Lobdell's run and the start to Seagull's, uh, depending on how you count. But that's not the only issue that is a turning point because Adjectiveless X-Men is also taken over by a new writer. So let's talk about X-Men number 70, Homecoming, written by Joe Kelly, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Art Tiber and John Dell, colored by Chris Lichner, Aaron Lucen and Liquid, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Colia Fuchs. So Joe Kelly, uh, he's probably best known for runs on Deadpool and Spider-Man, but he does a really good job, at least, with, with this issue. And this issue knows it's a fresh start in some ways. The cover is yet another homage to Giant Size X-Men number one, uh, with the new characters, in this case, Maggot, Marrow, and Cecilia Reyes, bursting through the comic with all the past characters looking on in shock.
0: They are definitely, of course, the very equal to those characters. When you look back at the annals of the X-Men, we think of the only all, all different X-Men team, and then the next team we think of is Maggot, Marrow, and Dr. Cecilia Race.
1: To Joe Kelly's credit, this issue does more to sell those characters as new exciting members of the X-Men than I thought was possible. Like, after reading X-Men number 70, I am so excited to see these three on the team. I know they won't stick around for a long time. I know this run doesn't work out. But man, Joe Kelly sells the hell out of all three of them. But we don't get to them yet because we open with our favorite sitcom. Everybody hates everybody. The everybody in question being Iceman, Cecilia, and Marrow, who are just bickering and yelling at each other constantly. It is delightful. Like Marrow eggs Iceman on into sliding them more and more recklessly toward the mansion that they're heading to. And Cecilia, after they land, threatens to catheterize Iceman while he sleeps. It- it's it's really fun
0: you get this incredible panel after the land of Iceman de-icing we don't see that happen very often with his powers and I kind of think we should see it more because according to this he de-ices from right to left in the way that you sometimes see Mystique transform and his speech bubbles do the same thing they go from blue jaggedy to kind of standard white as he's doing that it's really cool look
1: It's it's genuinely excellent, yeah. And there's another great panel of Cecilia scowling up toward Mero as she's just demanding respect, and Mero is just smiling smugly down. Mero is much taller as she refers to Cecilia as meat. Man, Carlos Pacheco, the the late, great Carlos Pacheco, he was so good. And I gotta say, his version of Mero is probably, at this point, probably my favorite. Like, Mero's been a little prettified, but Carlos Pacheco really works in that monstrousness just creeping around the edges, both in the form of her bone powers and also in the form of just that, like, chaos behind her eyes.
0: Yeah, he gives her such mean facial expressions like she always just looks like she knows that she is causing trouble and she's got that very much that she is the horrible goose in the x-men she is going to cause problems on purpose
1: untitled marrow game i love it
0: <laughs> so when they head in ice man is like super keen to show them all the, the mansion and show off everything but it doesn't work at all because the mansion's completely empty
1: Yeah, it's bare wood. There's no paint. There's no carpeting. There's no anything. I guess Bastion and his troops went back in after Cable left and just took literally everything. We find out later that apparently Bastion and his people used nanotech to just strip every molecule of everything but the wood and the foundation away. They were thorough. Yeah,
0: but I mean, there's one person that they may have forgotten, which was... The cryostasis tank containing the Brood Queen infected Hannah Cornover from the X-Men Brood Day of Wrath miniseries. Come on, guys. It's a key plot point.
1: I, oh, I, it should be is the thing. She's got a Brood Queen inside her. The X-Men were trying to treat her. And after the Day of Wrath miniseries, she was just forgotten. Oh, we'll, we'll get to that. Mm. Cecilia is so upset's the wrong word because it doesn't uh quite capture her level of both despair and anger at this whole thing seeing what's not there
0: nothing there's nothing here why did i follow you for this for nothing
1: and i can't blame her the the normal successful life that she fought for is just gone like it's not the x-men's fault that she got outed but if i were her i'd have some negative associations too Not much time for those associations, though, because suddenly the captured X-Men are back from the desert. There is this delightful splash page as they descend from the plane they were in. Storm is in the air looking serious, Cannonball's proudly blasting forward with this grinning Wolverine wrapped around him. Gene, in a pink telekinetic Phoenix flare, is holding Scott up. Like, there's even a tendril of telekinesis holding his arm up to the side as they fly— Remember, Cyclops is at death's door right now. Like, he had a bomb implanted in him, and that bomb is getting closer and closer to going off. I do love that idea, though. The idea that when Jean is going really hard with her powers, that telekinesis manifests as her greatest association with the concept of power, the Phoenix Force. Like, this isn't the Phoenix Force, but it's still in a Phoenix flare. It's cool. And it is just chaos. They crash through the roof of the X-Mansion trying to get to the med lab, but there is no med lab. And some of the other X Men are there, and a couple of new people. And Storm and Marrow see each other. And as far as we know, like the last time Storm saw Marrow was when Storm ripped out Marrow's heart. Storm thinks Marrow's dead, and Marrow hates Storm. It is just such delightful chaos. And Joe Kelly nails it. There's just all these overlapping dialogue bits, all of these interruptions. Cecilia starts
0: Someone with a half decent vocabulary, tell me what happened. And then Sam comes in.
1: Excuse me, miss, but I... They don't speak English in Kansas? I said, what happened? I'm not from Kansas. And then Wolverine joins in. What exactly are you supposed to be, lady? Besides so an obvious pain in the rear.
0: It's a lot of apostrophes in that sentence.
1: So Scott
0: is being Scott. He's doing his usual stoic thing. He's just like, oh, let me die. And Gina's just telling him to shut up. She's not having any of this.
1: Darling, I love you, but you're making it difficult for me to concentrate on keeping your abdomen from exploding.
0: So Jean gives Cecilia this kind of painful telepathic memory dump, which conveniently allows the issue to recap what's up with Scott to the readers. And Cecilia gets it. There's so much suffering because these folks are mutants.
1: And she sees how much Jean loves Scott. So it's business time. But that's not going to be easy because there's nothing in the mansion. They have no med lab, but they also have no medical supplies, no drugs, no nothing. And so Cecilia takes charge, starts giving orders. She doesn't even bother to learn anyone's name, which I love. So Sam is Corn Pone. Storm is the tall sister. Logan is Hairball. They all have their tasks. Storm meets
0: up with Marrow as she boils water with lightning outside, which is hardcore. This is the first news Storm has had that Marrow survived
1: right i think so yeah like i was looking at mara's various various appearances and she's been around since it turned out she was fine because she had a second heart but not where storm was as far as i know the fact that she's got two hearts is incredible she's just obviously part-time lord i think exactly and the tension here is so so intense like there is just rage and frustration and regret between these characters but there's no time for it. One of the things this issue does incredibly well is the pacing. There's this countdown. Cyclops is dying. Jean's doing her best to keep the bomb from exploding telekinetically, but she's going to run out of steam. She's not at the Phoenix anymore, even though that's her code name. So they need to move. They need to hustle. And stuff just keeps happening. Yeah, Iceman is
0: working to keep Scott's body temperature down. Sam has gone to get a ton of supplies that he blasted through this pharmacy to get. He left a little IOU, Sam Guthrie, note behind him. Very good. Pulverizing antibiotics to powder in a bowl with pestles that are made out of marrow's bone shards, which is gross. And Logan is getting his claws
1: sterilized in boiling water because he's the scalpel. I mean, this is a little over the top. I'm not sure that it's fully believable, but it doesn't need to be. I've often said it doesn't have to make sense if it's awesome. And seeing these characters in such dire straits, in such desperation, using their powers in such novel ways, working together in such novel ways to save their friend, is genuinely great. This issue is freaking wonderful. I'm so excited to get to Kelly's run because of it. Absolutely. And Kelly's not only good at pacing, Kelly's good at a lot of these characters. Jean puts Scott into a deep sleep with her telepathy, as he says that he loves her one last time.
0: And she says... Okay, as she looks up at Logan.
1: Not used to using these things for healing, Doc. But for these two kids, I'll try anything once. And so help me, I'll get it right. These three, seriously. Yeah, when they're written right, they're so good. We see that bond. That's part of why I was always annoyed by the triangle. Because, yes, everyone's attracted to everyone, of course, and that finally gets fulfilled in the Krakowan era later. But the fact is, they all just really care about each other. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's at this moment when a suit-clad Juggernaut and the lawyer he's carrying on his shoulder show up. They are here with an order to freeze the Xavier financial estate until Juggernaut, that being of course Xavier's stepbrother, is made its administrator since Charles Xavier has been incapacitated. Kane is so pleased that he can screw over the X-Men legally without even getting in a fight. Storm, who answers the door, coldly tells him to basically kick rocks and just, um, opens up a rain cloud above his head and slams the door on him. Juggernaut's not pleased.
0: You ruined my good suit! No one soils the Juggernaut and gets away with it!
1: That's his new epithet, the unsoilable Juggernaut. (laughs) Joe Kelly is a delight. And just as Kane is about to smash the whole place up, more stuff happens! It's
0: the X-Men from space stroke the cold places. It's Beast, it's Rogue, it's Joseph, it's Maggot, it's Trish Tilby, it's everyone who wasn't here before. So this crashes Uncanny X-Men 350 right into the side of X-Men 70 at full ramming
1: speed. The Space X-Men fight the Juggernaut, while the other X-Men, who are effectively the medical team, tries to get to the bomb deep in Scott's abdomen. There's actually a pretty graphic image of it, with him cut wide open and them reaching inside. It's, it's intense. And we just cut back and forth at lightning speed between the Juggernaut, laughing out loud at how everything's gone to hell in this empty mansion, and the bomb is starting to move and merge with itself inside Scott, which is going to like cover everything in nano-goo and just kill all of them. Joseph loses his temper and almost kills the juggernaut. And it's just thing after thing after thing. The pacing is amazing. The X-Men have their backs up against the wall so hard. And then Maggot
0: just strolls in. Cool as anything to save the day.
1: Hold on, hey. The bomb seems a lot more urgent than this droppy Runick.
0: This is real South African slang. There's a bunch of South African slang in this issue, actually, which Joe Kelly seems to have properly researched. Ruinick is, is literally redneck. Uh, from Afrikaans which means that Maggot is very firmly placed as South African
1: so he's not Australian anymore so sorry animated Wolverine you've lost a pal yeah the slang comes kind of fast and furious but it does convey the proud confidence that this incarnation of Maggot has I think it gives Maggot a lot more personality than he had before I mean before it was just a cool character design and yeah he has one of his slugs Enie eat the terrified lawyer's briefcase and intimidate the crap out of Juggernaut, who just sort of laughs and walks away. And I really like how Carlos Pacheco draws Maggot's non-powered form, because remember, Maggot turns blue and gets more muscular when his slugs eat things. I like the way he draws Maggot's regular form as so much smaller than the Juggernaut. It really shows just, like, the level of swagger this character has. I like this Maggot a lot.
0: Yeah, I like the fact that they beat the Juggernaut by having Eni eat the legal documents which as we all know from any film in which the scrappy summer camp has to beat the rich kids summer camp from across the lake that's how you defeat evil people is you just destroy their contract for your land and no one just goes back to the office and prints out
1: another copy or anything oh yeah it's how you can destroy a computer by shooting the screen So
0: this scene is is basically the the Anchorman loud noises moment, isn't it? There are so many speech bubbles on this page at one time. Everyone is filling each other in on what they missed, and they're just yelling at each other.
1: And normally I would be annoyed at this level of tell-don't-show, but it really does highlight the confusion and the tension, and just how fucked up things have gotten for the X-Men, with the team having been split apart into three groups for so long, four if you count Archangel and Psylocke. But they have to get the bomb out, apparently, just as it's about to explode, or else it'll just take root inside Cyclops again, which makes things even more tense with their utter lack of tools. Marrow cracks about how, well, if it was a heart, Storm could just pull it out. And then she painfully, graphically pulls two bones that she says aren't quite ready to pop out of her arm to use to help pry this thing out. And it works.
0: But then... They've got a live bomb, and some days you just can't get rid of a bomb, as Batman previously found out. So Rogue thinks fast
1: and throws it at Meanie. And there's a chomp, foom, erp, and everything's fine. Meanie just ate the nanobomb, and now it's gone. Yeah, and Maggot is back to blue, and he looks just so pleased. Ag, that's a good one, love. Fixed up. I know, no need to say it the coolest the mac to die for i could
0: go on so this is maggot effectively inviting himself onto the x-men team although as we'll see in some later issues he still doesn't feel even half a dozen issues later like he's actually part of the team scott welcomes cecilia in cecilia is really not that interested changes the subject walks away and maggot invites his slugs or the girls that he calls them back into his body when he gets back into a bit of privacy it's painful it's gross we get to see maggot all scrunched up in agony as the slugs re-enter him it's really quite horrific
1: it is yeah and that's one of the things i like about this iteration of maggot is he's got that just unshakable cheerful confidence And then he's got that pain within. We've seen that contrast before. We've seen that in uh, Strong Guy. We've seen that in Puck to a lesser extent. I think it really works with Maggot. And there's this great closing scene as Scott and Gene, finally safe, talk about just how broken things are. And over that dialogue in captions, we see, like you mentioned, Al, Maggot's face scrunched up in agony just a close up. We see Cecilia standing alone in the rain just as a silhouette from afar. We see Marrow blowing a kiss to Cannonball as she heads into a bedroom on the door of which she's carved this way to a dark ride. Things are in such disarray right now. Almost nobody's happy. And God, it works. This issue makes such a strong case for Maggot, Cecilia, and Marrow as new members of the cast. There's just so much drama between everyone. There's so much conflict. There's so much complicated, conflicted heroism. These characters don't feel tacked on. This combination of characters feels very deliberate. This feels like a new era in the good way.
0: I really wish we could have read a proper run of these writers and, and these artists working on these characters in these books. After this story, the teams are effectively merged again between the two books, but the era itself is far too short-lived, and as we'll see, it eventually sort of crashes into itself.
1: Yeah, but all credit to Joe Kelly, and then the person who has the harder job, Steve Siegel. It's a weird time to jump in, and I think they do everything they can with, with what they're given. It's... Also, kind of fun for me, because I've barely read anything of this era, so I'm prepared to be there for the ups and the downs and the disappointments and the triumphs as this run continues. What we may or may not be prepared for is the questions that you, our listeners, have. Patrick Sanger asks on Twitter, Since you're celebrating a centennial anniversary, what's your favorite 25-50-75-100 anniversary issue in the X-Line throughout its history, and why? For me, it's
0: X-Men 25. It was an absolutely massive deal for Wolverine, huge deal for Professor X and Magneto. Yeah, you know, as it turns out, it was going to be a huge deal for the Marvel Universe as well. And then it leads into Wolverine 75, which is one of the best character issues for Wolverine in his history. There's this feeling of the sense of the weight of history in X-Men 25. Xavier having to go as far as he's ever gone. Like It feels like... It feels like the preceding few years had
1: all really just been leading up to that point. Those are great choices. And yeah, that's a good point. Uh, A number 25, which is a big deal, goes right into a number 75, which is a big deal. I never really thought about that. For me, I think it's probably Uncanny X-Men number 200. It's the climax of all the character work that Chris Claremont has done with Magneto, turning him from a mustache-twirling Silver Age villain into this complex, conflicted, fascinating gray character And it leads into a very different era of X Men that follows. Remember, this is where Xavier goes into space for like a long, long time to have his injuries treated. And Magneto ends up as headmaster of the Xavier school. It's climactic, but it feels earned. It opens up a new era in a way that feels creatively driven instead of like sales driven. It's stellar.
0: Meanwhile, over on Twitter, Reese Indigo My God, which is, I must applaud you for your name, Reese asks what dangling plot thread from any period would you like to see followed up on
1: oh god oh reese i have so many answers (laughs) you have opened up a can of worms in this already long episode i'll see if i can keep it quick so in no particular order there's what happened to rachel summers between when spiral captured her in uncanny number 209 And when she showed up in the Excalibur Special Edition, we were actually supposed to get a graphic novel that would describe all that, but it never really happened. It still could. I would love more Rachel Summers content. There's what we talked about before. Hannah freaking Conover, the minister's wife that's got a brood queen inside her. You could easily retcon away where she went. Like, maybe Bastion captured her. Maybe somebody else had taken her away. could be any number of things. It's a big deal. And speaking of the brood, the space clone brood X-Men from New Mutants number 63... Those were the ones that Ilyana met up with, where it turned out the Brood had created their own version of the 70s X-Men from the Brood saga. I I know it was ambiguous whether that story was something that really happened or just a dream or Ilyana's story, but but even so, there's what happened to Mirage between when the New Mutants left her in Asgard at the end of the Asgardian adventure, and when she showed up on Earth without really being a Valkyrie anymore, with Brightwind, her horse, having turned into Darkwind, which is awesome— And most recently, there's whatever happened between Age of X-Man and House of X. Uh, House of X sort of was an abrupt start. A lot had happened before that we didn't see, and that was deliberate. But I'm really fascinated by that. If nothing else, like, why did Xavier choose that period to decide to pull the trigger and found Krakoa? So many options.
0: (laughs) From my perspective, it's got to be one of the, the key stories for me. When I started reading X-Men, because I didn't know what was important and what wasn't. And it turns out it's not an important story at all, but it could possibly have been had they decided to lean into it, which is hazard Carter Wright. Yes. Like it, there's a lot of different stuff in that little two-issue storyline from the early days of uh Adjectiveless X-Men that are just completely left hanging. Like, what involvement did Xavier have with Wolverine's adamantium skeleton? Was Xavier's mutation, like, actually deliberately, you know, enhanced or brought on or accelerated by his own dad? You know, that's, there's a lot in there, and it was
1: completely left hanging, just never, never mentioned again. Oh, I haven't thought about hazards since we covered him on the show, but God, you're right, there's so much fertile ground there. Yeah, and all the stuff with the Shiva protocols and all that kind of thing.
0: So much that just got left.
1: So we'll get to listener thanks in a moment, but I also wanted to give a special shout out in our 400th episode to the podcast's artist, David Wynn. This is David's last episode, and he has done such an amazing job in defining the look of this podcast and coming up with original art for almost every episode we've done since very early on. David, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for working with us.
0: David's art has been so intrinsically linked with this show. I very fondly remember being at the Thought Bubble convention in uh, it was in Leeds at that point in time still, and making a new friend on the dance floor because she and I were both wearing David's uh, Leila Cheney Cats Laughing Wembley poster t-shirt, and it's it's a whole aesthetic that hangs together the the, the show over the years and just terrific and he's going to be really missed by fans i know because i i'm speaking in my capacity as one
1: yeah david thank you so much it has been great we're
0: a fully listener supported podcast and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and or concepts so today we're turning the microphone over to apocalypse and shinobi Shaw.
1: One era ends, and another begins. With the passing of the Scribes' pen, this unworthy era dies, and a new age is born. An age of... APOCALYPSE! Ensaba? We already did one of those. And I wasn't even in it. And not the way I am in all sorts of things, that is sex things.
0: Silence, mewling and frivolous child! The specifics of reproduction are insignificant in the face of the tempering of the earth itself! Only the strongest and most ruthless, like myself and Grupple Stilskins, on our twin thrones atop mountains of burning skulls,
1: shall survive the coming inferno! Inferno? We already did one of those two, my little blue minx, and I wasn't in that either. I was off with spindrift games, learning to play in all sorts of ways. You know, role-playing. Do you like to pretend, Pocky? You are insufferable, Shaw, and
0: shall perish with all the least worthy of your kind. It shall be a fall of the mutants, a mutant massacre, a true onslaught.
1: Well, if you're going to be like that, I prefer fatal attractions. And with that, Jane Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and Edinburgh, Scotland, and is produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most
0: Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at
1: explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and one last piece of art by David Wynn.
0: Our show is 100% listener supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, the kids of Generation X are back. Fighting retcons, breakups, an evil circus, and Christmas...
1: I hope other I hope the listeners find jazz drives as entertaining as I do. I don't know why <laughs> I find them hilarious, but I do. I've
0: even heard the term in about 15, 20 years.
1: Yeah, it's uh, pro- probably many of our listeners are younger than jazz drives. We're gonna see how it goes.